Hey, it's your host, Shannon Ballard. Southern Mysteries is an independent podcast made possible by the support of patrons who help me continue to share stories like the one you'll hear today. I appreciate all of my patrons, including our newest members, Amy S. from Santa Maria, California, Miles from Conway, South Carolina, Cynthia Finley from Cedar Rapids, Iowa, Rhonda from Marion, South Carolina, and patrons listening and supporting from mysterious locations, Mary G., Kristen R., Cindy F., Cheryl B., and Christina M. And when you join all of these folks in supporting the show on Patreon, you can hear ad-free episodes and the show archive of the first three seasons. You can also join at a level where you can have access to lots of bonus content for patrons, like the archives of our patron-exclusive podcast and the new patron-exclusive monthly podcast, Audacious, Tales of Scandalous and Shocking Crimes in American History. You can check it out for yourself and start listening to episodes you haven't heard before at patreon.com slash southernmysteries. When Satan promised all the kingdoms of the world to Christ, he laid his thumb on Charlottesville and whispered, Except this place, which I reserve for my own special use. Those are the words of Dr. Conrad Spies, a Presbyterian minister from Virginia, who attempted to preach in Charlottesville in 1818, but he was rejected by what he called rude boys coming from the tavern. Dr. Spies may sound a little overdramatic, considering the Charlottesville we know today is a friendly tourist town in the Shenandoah Valley, best known as the home of the University of Virginia and the plantations of three presidents. But the rich history of Charlottesville is shrouded in darkness. UVA is known as one of the most haunted universities in the country. According to local lore, when Edgar Allan Poe was a student, he etched this mysterious poem on a window pane. O thou timid one, do not let thy form slumber within these unhallowed walls, for herein lies the ghost of an awful crime. There are many ghosts of awful crimes in Charlottesville, including the ghost of Coleman Hall. The house was the site of one of the most heinous murders in Charlottesville history. In 1904, the wife of Charlottesville's former mayor was found dead in their home, having been shot in the chest after she was bludgeoned and strangled. A man was arrested, convicted, and executed for her murder but many doubt his guilt, and some believe his execution was staged. Welcome to Southern Mysteries, exploring history and mysteries of the American South. I'm your host, Shannon Ballard. This is the mystery of the murder of Fannie McHugh. Charlottesville, the home of Thomas Jefferson and the University of Virginia, is one of the most historically significant cities in the state. Founded in the early 1760s, an act of the Virginia General Assembly declared 50 acres of land around the Albemarle County Courthouse, divided into half-acre lots with four east-west streets and five north-south streets. This is the area that forms what we know as downtown Charlottesville today, where you can find Coleman Hall. 
located at 601 Park Street, the historic home is now an apartment community. It was also home to one of the darkest chapters in the history of Charlottesville, where the wife of Samuel McHugh, the former mayor of Charlottesville, was found murdered in 1904. James Samuel McHugh was born January the 15th, 1861, in Albemarle County, Virginia. The son of James and Sally McHugh was part of a respected farming family. As he came of age, he helped his father with a successful cattle and farming business. Samuel McHugh's family made sure he had the finest education available at private schools before he studied law at the University of Virginia. In 1884, he moved to Charlottesville, where he practiced law before pursuing political office. He was an alderman before he was elected Charlottesville's mayor for two consecutive terms from 1896 until 1900, when he turned down the nomination for a third term. He worked as a municipal court judge before he ran for mayor again in 1902. He won a third term and remained in office until the fall of 1904. By 1904, Samuel McHugh was one of the wealthiest men in Charlottesville. Money and politics come with fair-weather friends and committed enemies. While in office, Samuel earned many enemies thanks to his work in domestic relations and debt collection. Samuel married Frances McNutt Crawford in November 1886, and the couple had four children— Frances was known as a loving mother of high character who was beloved in Charlottesville. The McHugh home on Park Street, downtown, was one of the finest in the city. Samuel McHugh purchased the property from the estate of John Cochran in 1890 and constructed their large brick Queen Anne home the following year. But money and a fine home can't buy happiness. Samuel McHugh never made an effort to hide that he was cheating on Fanny, which led to tensions at home. On the evening of September 4, 1904, a telephone switchboard operator received a call from 601 Park Street around 9 p.m. The operator, Virginia Bragg, asked Mr. McHugh who he wished to connect with, and Samuel answered, T.J. Williams. Miss Bragg explained Mr. Williams' line was busy, to which Samuel quickly replied, Do not tell me it's busy. Somebody in my house has shot me and probably killed my wife. The Central Telephone Office immediately notified police who responded to the McHugh home on Park Street, along with Samuel McHugh's brother, Dr. Frank McHugh, who had received a frantic call from his brother. Dr. McHugh lived just a few blocks away and arrived first, followed by policeman Daniel C. Grady. When Dr. McHugh entered his brother's home, he found Samuel on the stairway, and he noticed his brother had a small cut on his cheek and seemed slightly dazed. At first, Samuel didn't answer Frank when he asked if he was okay. The only other person in the house was McHugh's stable boy, John Perry. Samuel told Frank and John to find Fanny, and he pointed upstairs. Dr. McHugh, Policeman Grady, and the stable boy, John Perry, all walked upstairs. It was Dr. McHugh who entered the second-floor bathroom and found Fanny in the bathtub. It was immediately clear she was dead. Fanny McHugh had been submerged to her neck in water drawn from the spigot, which was still running. Policeman Grady helped Dr. McHugh and John Perry remove the body to the bed. 
And that's when they noticed her other wounds. Fanny McHugh had been struck on the head and shot in the chest at close range with a shotgun. Policeman Grady searched the premises and found no evidence of a struggle in any room except the bathroom, which was strange considering Samuel McHugh was downstairs complaining of an assault and serious injury, despite his own brother saying he didn't seem seriously injured and would be fine. Police McGrady found a blood-stained baseball bat standing in a corner of McHugh's bedroom, which was later identified as a bat that belonged to the McHugh children. Samuel's Winchester pump-style shotgun was found beside the bathroom door. It contained just one empty shell. Several windows were open in the house, which indicated Samuel McHugh's story of an attack happening as the result of a burglary in the house could be true. Samuel McHugh offered a $1,000 reward for any information leading to the arrest of the person who broke into his home and murdered his wife. But as authorities learned more about the events of the night of September 4th and learned more about Samuel and Fanny's relationship, doubt was cast on the innocence of Charlottesville's former mayor. Two days before Fanny McHugh's murder, Samuel traveled to Washington, D.C., on a business trip. The same day, September 2nd, Fanny visited her in-laws at their home about seven miles from Charlottesville. Around 5 p.m. on Sunday, September 4th, Fanny returned home, followed by Samuel's return about an hour later. When Samuel entered his home, he heard Fanny in the parlor entertaining a neighbor. He chose not to interrupt them so he could go upstairs to freshen up before the dinner hour. Fanny and Samuel shared an evening meal with their 17-year-old son, Willie, before Fanny left the home alone to walk to the Presbyterian Church for evening service. Willie later said the dinner was normal, with no argument or disagreement between his parents that night. Samuel asked if Willie wanted to join him on his walk to church, but Willie declined, saying he planned to call on a friend and would see his dad at home later. Samuel walked to church where he was seen sitting in the family pew with Fanny. When the service ended just before 9 p.m., the couple walked towards their home with several fellow congregation members and Samuel's uncle, Marshall Dimwitty. Marshall walked to the McHugh's gates and the three chatted for a moment before Samuel invited Marshall inside. Marshall declined, saying his wife had not been well and he wanted to get home to check on her. It was a warm night, so the windows and doors of many residences on Park Street were open for ventilation, and many neighbors were sitting on their porches. Neighbors witnessed the McHughes with Mr. Dimwitty around 9.15. Fanny and Samuel McHugh walked through the gates, entered their front door, and the exact details of what happened inside the house at 601 Park Street have never been clear. There were only three people known to be inside the house that night, Fanny, Samuel, and stable boy John Perry, who lived in a servant's room on the second floor of the rear part of the house. None of the McHugh children were at home at the time their mother was attacked and killed. Dr. Frank McHugh later told police he'd received that frantic phone call from his brother sometime between 9.15 and 9.30 with Samuel begging Frank to come quick because, quote, somebody is in the house 
has knocked me senseless and has probably shot Fanny. Many people entered the McHugh house that night, from the McHugh's son, Willie, who had been away from home at the time of the attack, but ran to his father's side. Willie's arrival marked the moment police heard Samuel McHugh change his story. When Willie came home and ran to Samuel to check on him, Samuel said, your mother is dead. A burglar has killed her. He had told policeman Grady that someone had probably killed Fanny. At that time, Samuel had not been informed by police that Fanny McHugh was dead. Samuel also told Willie he was undressing when he heard a rattling and looked around to see a dirty, greasy man, possibly a railroad man. Samuel claimed he reached for his gun, but the intruder got hold of him before he got to the gun. He claimed they tussled before he was knocked out. Samuel stated Fanny was in the room when the man came in. But to another witness who spoke with Samuel inside the McHugh house the night of Fanny's death, Samuel said he heard a noise in the hall and went out and grappled with an intruder. Then he backed away from the man and went and got his gun. As he returned with the gun, the man knocked him down and took hold of his gun. He explained to another witness someone entered his room, knocked him senseless, and shot his wife. Samuel McHugh's story changed about seven times, with only one part remaining consistent. The intruder was a dirty, greasy-looking white man. The autopsy of Fanny McHugh took place at the McHugh residence between midnight and 2 a.m. on September 5th. Dr. J.E. Early and Dr. Venable, accompanied by Dr. McHugh, made a thorough examination of the body. They found an incised wound on the nose, but no bones were broken. Fanny's right ear was cut almost in two, and there was a distinct contusion on the front and back of the ear. The wound was consistent with an injury that might have been made by a baseball bat and would have probably led to confusion or insensibility on Fanny's part. There were fingerprints on Fanny's throat, four on one side and one on the other, as if she had been choked. These could only have been made while Fanny was still alive. There was a gunshot wound in the chest, which went in practically solid and must have been made at close range, as the wound was full of powder. The physicians agreed the gunshot wound produced instantaneous death. They also agreed Fanny McHugh had been placed in the bathtub after death, as her wounds would have made it impossible for her to move or position herself in the manner in which she was found in the bathtub. Early on the morning of Tuesday, September 6, a coroner's jury was sworn in to investigate the death of Fanny McHugh. Dr. W.D. Macon presided over the jury, which was made up of men living in the McHugh neighborhood. At the inquest, Samuel McHugh recounted his claim that he was attacked and knocked unconscious after he noticed someone enter his bedroom. He also confirmed the morning after Fanny's murder, he took out an ad in the Daily Progress, offering that $1,000 reward for information leading to the conviction of the killer. He also told the jury he hired the Baldwin Detective Agency of Roanoke to help investigate the crime, and the city of Charlottesville had agreed to split the cost because Charlottesville had no detectives to investigate Fanny's murder. In a turn of events Samuel McHugh never saw coming, a detective from the Baldwin Agency 
testified during the coroner's inquest that the agency was no longer working for Samuel McHugh. They were only working for the city of Charlottesville. They explained that after one day on the job, they were convinced Samuel McHugh was guilty after only one other suspect in the case was ruled out as the killer. That suspect was Lester Marshall of Earliesville. His wife, Hattie, was one of Samuel McHugh's clients. She had visited Samuel in the summer of 1904 to file for divorce from Lester. Samuel and Hattie began an affair that continued until September 2nd, 1904. That day, Hattie mailed a letter to Lester, her estranged husband. She asked him to come to Charlottesville on Monday, September 5th, so they could discuss their relationship. Lester received the letter on September 3rd, but wasn't able to come to Charlottesville until the 6th. When he met with Hattie, she was angry, and when pressed about her anger, Hattie explained to Lester it was imperative he meet with police as soon as possible because she had learned he was a suspect in Fanny McHugh's murder. Lester questioned Hattie's explanation that she was desperate to get him to the city to clear his name. He asked her why she wrote to him about the crime before the crime happened. Lester realized Hattie and her lover Samuel appeared to be trying to implicate him in Fanny's murder. He fully cooperated with investigators and later told a reporter Samuel McHugh cheated him out of a wife, ruined his life, and attempted to put a rope around his neck. The Baldwin agency established Lester Marshall had an alibi for Fanny's murder, and it was confirmed by several witnesses. Fanny McHugh was buried on September 6, the day her husband testified at the coroner's inquest. The next day, Samuel McHugh was arrested and charged with her murder. Samuel McHugh's murder trial began in Charlottesville on October 18th. It was a sensational chapter in Charlottesville history with constant coverage by the local newspaper, The Daily Progress, and national coverage as well. The Commonwealth's theory of the murder was that Samuel McHugh had a fight with Fanny the night of the murder and in a fit of rage, viciously beat and then shot his wife. The defense claimed Samuel had been a victim who was knocked senseless when his wife was attacked and killed by an intruder. Samuel had no alibi because there was never a question as to whether he was inside his own home. His neighbor saw him walk inside with Fanny. Samuel's brother, Dr. McHugh, testified on his behalf and remained on his side. He confirmed that when he entered the home, he found that Samuel was wounded and claimed during the trial that Samuel wasn't coherent due to his head trauma. The Commonwealth noted Dr. McHugh's statement about his brother's condition at the scene of the crime, noted he would be fine, was not seriously injured, and was only slightly dazed. They called another doctor to the stand who had examined Samuel McHugh the night of the attack. His testimony contradicted Dr. McHugh's testimony because the doctor said Samuel McHugh had a small facial wound and claimed to be greatly wounded, but there were no additional wounds on his body and no sign of a head wound that could have rendered him unconscious and caused profound head trauma. The Commonwealth noted that despite Samuel's claim that his wife was killed by an intruder during an attempted burglary, nothing was stolen from the home 
and the evidence wasn't consistent with Samuel's claim of a struggle with an intruder. The baseball bat found near the body of Fanny McHugh had stains on it, which appeared to be blood, but no blood stains were found in the bedroom or in the hall leading to the bathroom. There was some blood on Samuel's face due to his small facial injury, but additional blood was found on the shirt he was wearing that night, despite Samuel having no additional wounds. They questioned why no additional blood stains were found around the bedroom or bathroom if Samuel had been attacked and struggled with an intruder. Samuel McHugh lacked defense wounds, you would see, when someone is attacked, and they fight back. Wounds Fanny McHugh bore on her body. The Commonwealth pointed out she clearly tried to fight her attacker because Fanny wore her fingernails long. One of her fingernails was broken and turned back, which indicated she had tried to fight the person who was taking her life. Samuel McHugh was a powerful and wealthy man in Charlottesville, but his questionable character was called out in court, along with the complicated and often violent nature of his relationship with his wife. It was well known around town that Samuel McHugh was unfaithful, and there was a lot of talk about the fights overheard between Fanny and Samuel for years. During Willie McHugh's testimony, Samuel's son was forced to admit his parents would often fight, and those fights had become violent. But Willie claimed his parents were getting along the night his mother died. Fanny's brother, Ernest Crawford, testified that he had always had concerns about the relationship between his sister and Samuel. But he came face-to-face with the tense nature of their relationship when he lived with the McHughes while he was attending university between August 1900 and July 1901. He testified he witnessed Samuel McHugh treat his sister in what he would call an inhumane and cruel manner. He called the McHugh home the most unhappy household he had ever been in. Ernest Crawford said he witnessed Samuel McHugh curse his wife and treat her violently. Fanny McHugh even begged her brother to help her, but he refused, telling his sister that if he intervened, he knew there would be bloodshed. Either he would kill Samuel, or Samuel would kill him. When asked what sparked Samuel McHugh's rage against Fanny, Ernest said it always started with Fanny pointing out another woman Samuel had been intimate with. When she was confined at home, following the birth of her daughter Ruby, Fanny told Ernest she asked Samuel to stop going out to see these other women. Samuel's response was to tell Fanny to stay out of his business. He then pulled a pistol on her and threatened to kill her. Fanny ran to Willie's room, and Willie did what he was often forced to do. He intervened during an argument between his parents and helped calm his father down. Ernest revealed that while he was living with the McHughes, his sister said all she got were curses and abuses from Samuel. She confided her concerns about divorce, saying women were seen in a bad light even if they were innocent in marriage, especially women married to a powerful man like Samuel McHugh. Ernest claimed he advised his sister to seek a divorce and ignore any criticism from the public because she needed to feel safe and get away from Samuel. When pushed by the defense to explain why he didn't defend his sister against the man he felt was violent, 
Ernest Crawford expressed regret and mentioned he was much younger than Samuel McHugh and did not wield the power and influence of the McHugh family. He explained he mentioned his concerns about Samuel's violence towards his sister to Samuel McHugh's brothers and asked for their help. They were said to have addressed the matter with Samuel privately, and Fanny remained with Samuel, even as she confided to Ernest years later that she felt he was driving her insane with the violence. More than 1,000 people were in and around the courthouse on the final day of McHugh's murder trial. When it came time to deliberate Samuel McHugh's fate, the jury took 21 minutes to return a guilty verdict. The former Charlottesville mayor was sentenced to death with the execution date set for January the 20th, 1905. A December 21st, 1904 newspaper article featured a story about Samuel McHugh as he awaited execution. The headline read, McHugh believes he'll be set free. The article noted McHugh spent most of his days behind bars, reading his Bible while he ate meals prepared by the staff from his home, including porterhouse steak, buckwheat cakes, and hot rolls and butter. McHugh often spoke of waiting in patience for a new trial in his belief that his lawyers would succeed in obtaining it and someday he would be free. Samuel McHugh's attorneys did obtain a stay of execution, but in the end, an appeals court upheld his conviction and set the execution date for February 10th, 1905 at the Charlottesville City Jail. The execution time was kept secret from the public. The sheriff later said he wanted to avoid a large crowd. Around 6 a.m., Samuel McHugh's death warrant was read, and he met with spiritual advisors before he was guided to the gallows, where he had no final words. At 7.35 a.m., the trap was sprung, and at 7.54, Samuel McHugh was pronounced dead. As papers learned of the events of the day, there was a shocking reveal in the afternoon editions. Before his death, while meeting with spiritual advisors, Samuel McHugh had prayed a prayer of protection over his children and all of his family. McHugh, who had always maintained his innocence, followed that prayer by asking his counselors to take his confession, which he asked be made public following his death. The statement of confession signed by three witnesses read, J. Samuel McHugh stated this morning in our presence and requested us to make public that he did not wish to leave this world with suspicion resting on any other human being other than himself, that he alone was responsible for the deed, impelled to do it by an evil power beyond his control, and he recognized his sentence as just. One of the ministers who signed the statement as a witness said McHugh made a detailed confession to him, admitting he quarreled with Fanny and he shot her to death while she was on her knees, begging for mercy. He then tried to stage the scene to make it look as though there had been a burglary. Samuel's statement of confession was viewed by some as a statement made by a man who was trying to protect someone else. Samuel's reference to leaving this world without suspicion, resting on any human being other than himself, made some wonder if he had an accomplice or knew who murdered his wife. 
and took that secret to the grave. Samuel McHugh's death and his grave site have also been questioned. In the days following McHugh's execution, rumors spread around Charlottesville that Samuel McHugh had played a great trick on the town and faked his execution. A salesman on a train through Norfolk saw a suspicious-looking man on board. A woman had brushed by this man, and her umbrella caught his hat and knocked it off, along with a wig he had been wearing. The salesman immediately recognized the man who ran away once his disguise was on the ground as a lawyer he had done business with years before. Samuel McHugh. The salesman claimed this sighting happened February 11, 1905, the day after Samuel McHugh was executed. Newspapers featured stories theorizing how this wealthy and powerful man could have pulled off a con, particularly because his execution was not typical. The public wasn't informed of the time of the execution. Normally, executions would happen at high noon, but McHugh's was early in the morning with only a select group of 35 to 40 spectators in attendance. The turnout for high noon executions was in the hundreds and in high-profile cases like Samuel McHugh's could reach into the thousands. McHugh was hanged with his back to the witnesses, which also went against the very practice of executions, not only in Virginia, but nationwide. The point of an execution was to make the person face the people of the community in which they committed a crime, offer them the chance to share any final words, a confession, and then place a hood over their head before they were dropped into eternity. Normally, only a prisoner's face would be obscured. But as Samuel McHugh stood on the gallows, guards placed a full black robe over him rather than the standard black hood. Why obscure all of Samuel McHugh's body? And why was the drop of the gallows three feet, not the standard eight feet? A three-foot drop wasn't enough to break a prisoner's neck. An important detail, considering a witness noticed a deputy adjust the rope around McHugh's neck twice. When McHugh dropped at 7.35 a.m., a few witnesses noticed he didn't struggle, as was typical of prisoners who were hanged and strangled to death. Samuel McHugh's body was removed from the gallows several minutes later. He was declared dead, and his body quickly removed to his family's property for burial, with no funeral. Reporters who investigated the strange story learned Samuel McHugh was buried so quickly, his body wasn't identified at the time of death, meaning his life insurance policy could not be paid out unless he was disinterred for identification. Samuel McHugh's family said they preferred he rest in peace. The money was tied up in lawsuits for decades and never paid out. The McHugh family buried Samuel on the family property after his death, saying it was his wish to be buried near his parents, not his wife Fanny. But for unknown reasons, late on the night of December 12, 1908, Samuel McHugh's casket was unearthed and removed from the family property. The following day, it was reinterred in Charlottesville's Riverview Cemetery, next to the body of his wife Fanny the only name that appears on the headstone 
is Fanny McHugh's. In 2003, a Charlottesville reporter spoke with cemetery officials who confirmed that a probe of Samuel's side of the plot revealed what could be a burial casket or vault. But the cemetery official said, short of disinterment, there's no way to know if there is anything or anyone inside. Southern Mysteries is created and hosted by me, Shannon Ballard. Samuel and Fanny McHugh's four children lived in their family home throughout their father's trial. They remained in the charge of their uncle, Marshall Dimwitty, and his wife until they came of age. By April 1929, the McHugh home was sold to the Charlottesville Home for the Aged, which converted it for their residence and renamed it the Walker Dickinson Home. In 1967, they changed the name to Coleman Hall. The retirement home closed in the late 2000s, and an estate sale was held at Coleman Hall in May 2009. One of the remaining artifacts from the home that was auctioned was a bathtub from 1904. The bathtub Fanny McHugh had been found dead in. Coleman Hall still stands in Charlottesville. It's been renovated as an apartment building and is still accepting applications for rent. Residents and visitors do need to be mindful of and comfortable with potential encounters with people who made Coleman Hall a dark chapter in the history of Charlottesville. The unsettled spirits of Samuel and Fanny McHugh are said to be frequently spotted. Fanny in the room that was once the bathroom where she was found murdered. Samuel in the basement where the bathtub Fanny was found murdered in, was stored for decades. If you'd like to read more about the McHugh murder trial, you can read the history of the McHugh case or the McHugh murder. I'll link both of those books in the show notes, along with all the sources for this episode at southernmysteries.com. While you're there, you can also learn more about becoming a patron of this independent podcast. When you join Southern Mysteries on Patreon, you can access member-exclusive content, including the show archive of the first three seasons. You can also join at a level where you can listen to the archives of patron-exclusive podcasts and our newest monthly podcast, Audacious, which features some of the most scandalous and shocking crimes in American history. You can choose one of two support levels on Patreon, and it's easy to opt in or out which you can see for yourself when you sign up and join today at patreon.com slash southern mysteries. Another way you can show your support for this show is by rating or reviewing Southern Mysteries where you're listening now and sharing the episode on your social channels. However you support the show, just know it's appreciated. And as always, thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.